Episode 15, Convention One-Shots. Welcome back to DiceCast. Today's topic is going to be about running games at conventions. Essentially, running a one-shot and doing it in a way so that you can actually finish the damn thing in the time slot that you have. Yeah, and also uh, make it interesting for players, you know, especially if they're not familiar with the uh, game rules you're using. So we'll talk about some pointers and things that people have said and that work or may not work in the past. First off, your typical convention game, or even a one-shot adventure that you just run at a store or something like that, is going to be, what, three, four hours long tops? Most conventions are usually three to four hour time slot for a game. So number one thing that you see happening is people making a game that is too long for the time slot that's available. So the problem is is that they never have time to finish it, or if the game starts late, as, you know, conventions games never really start on time anyway. Because you're waiting for players to yeah, show up, or somebody's got to bring food or something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, you need to have, like, a scenario that could potentially last you know, for three to four hours, but really not much more than that. Even if you have like a four hour time slot, just figure that you'll lose at least 30 minutes to an hour from people signing up, then really starting and maybe explaining the rules at the beginning. So you have to factor all these things in. So I guess planning the time for the game is is, is important. A few things you have to be aware of is the various bottlenecks that occur in the game system that you're using and in the type of scenario that you're running. What are the things that slow it down? Is combat slow in the game? Okay, try not to have so much combat. When you think about it, you can probably get away with, you know, depending on the game system, one combat per hour or one combat every two hours. What do you think? Well, it depends on on the combat you're using. If if it's a game where you have lots of combat, like say D and D, well, yeah, you can have uh, more than one combat per hour. Just have to be uh, careful with with combats because they do tend to slow games down. And if it takes ten twenty minutes to resolve a single combat, uh, well, that's ten twenty minutes, and and you already have only three hours and a half left in your game. You want to make sure you limit those and not spend too much time running the combat. I've seen combats last, you know, four hours, for instance. If you've listened to any number of actual play podcasts out there, including ones that run D&D 4th Ed, you're going to see that a 10-20 minute D&D combat these days is wishful thinking, quite frankly. Those things could easily take up an hour or more. The other thing, too, is you have to watch out with spells and special abilities or anything like this, particularly games that have a lot of powers where people will have to know what these things do ahead of time. An interesting way of doing this would be to actually have it copy the relevant spells and abilities on a separate sheet that you tack on with the character sheet so that people can read them ahead of time and not have to flip through books to actually understand how they work. Because 
just writing down the names of the powers on the character sheet sometimes is not enough, especially if the names have you know very little. They're esoteric names. Yeah, well, esoteric or, or it's not. It's not obvious what the the ability does. Like you know, flies with the monkey. Okay, well, flies with the monkey gives you a plus two in detecting water. What does that have to do with flying and monkeys? What game system is this? Well, I don't know. I just made that one up. But okay. I'm just saying, you know, it's like... Well, anyway, so, you know, <laughs> you're sitting there and you've got your character sheet that says flying with monkeys. And, uh, well, you don't know what the hell that means. So you either the GM sits there and explains to everyone what each of their ability does, which takes a lot of time. Or he's passing around the book, but everybody has to read the same book because there's only one book at the table, which also takes a lot of time. So it's, especially if people are not familiar with a game setting, and you have to assume that if you're running a game at a convention, one of the things that people do is that they go out there to actually try out new games. So they, uh, you're, you're likely to get people who have no idea how the game system works. Anything with abilities or anything like this, you'd really want to have it you know, on a separate sheet that you can tack on with a character sheet, write it out so that people can actually have an idea of, of what's happening in the game. Same thing, too, with the elaborate backgrounds. If you have like a system, you know, with a huge backstory and a lot of informa- setting information, and then you you know end up, and I've seen this a lot of times. People will they'll run a game that has a, a built-in background or so on, or so on, or they're going to make a custom game that's based on this uh, book series that they really really love, and then they'll spend like hours trying to explain the whole setting. I mean, most people are familiar with Lord of the Rings. But, you know, just as an example, if you had to sit down and explain to them everything about the Lord of the Rings and the whole thing and all Sauron and this, the Third Age, blah, 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 it's a lot of exposition. And in the end, if it's not really relevant to the scenario, it's, it's nice to know that there's this big elaborate world out there. I'm glad you used Lord yeah. of the Rings as an example because the movies themselves explain the backstory behind the entire series in under five minutes each, yeah, if even. Well, they, they, they have, like, the whole like, aspect of, you know, where's Minas Tirith and who's this and who... You, you could spend hours going over the whole, like, Lord of the Rings, you know, trilogy and explain to them, okay, well, Aragorn was the son of this and blah, blah, blah. And then... But in the end, if it has no relationship with the scenario running, it's nice to know that there's this big, elaborate world out there, but really... You're just sitting there and your players are just sitting there learning this whole big world and just like all they want to do is just want to play. So I'll give you, you like a, I'll give you an example that's a bit more familiar to old school role players at least. There's Traveler. Anybody who's familiar with the Traveler role playing game knows that or the various editions that have been of it. I think there've been nine in total. Anybody who's familiar with it will tell you that it has a very long history, a huge backstory, and there are something like 20,000 worlds in several interstellar states. Now, granted, anybody who's read the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov is familiar with many of the ideas that were incorporated into Traveler and other books, too, which the names of which escaped me at the time, but back to Traveler itself... I can actually summarize the entire Traveler setting while standing on one foot. It is a space opera setting. You're not standing on a foot. Am I standing on one foot now? Yeah. Okay, it is a space opera setting in which there is an Imperium that's held together by trade, and communication is no faster than the speed of travel, which means even though there is a big, powerful Imperium out there, Local nobles have the power to do whatever the hell they want to do to anyone. That's your setting. 
Now on the other hand, now I've got it off of one, my one foot, if I were to begin and say, well, millions of years ago, there was this strange and wonderful, unique creature named Yaskoidre who realized he was so intelligent that he could change the horse of history for the entire Change the horse of history? Yes. And he decided <laughs> well, to make himself immortal and then, you know, detail a few hundred thousand years of history. I'm not kidding. Yeah, you would put everybody to sleep and... Your slot would be over by the time you've got halfway through it because you're trying to summarize 30 years of game development or incorporation of external sources into a single setting into a game session, which is not good. So definitely give people the short version there. I mean, we're not saying that you should stick with, you know, well-known settings like Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk or Call of Cthulhu just because everybody knows it, right? Well, no, you can, like, even Forgotten Realms, if most, some people may not have played in Forgotten Realms, and if you were to sit there and explain... Who hasn't? Well, I've, somebody that maybe has never played our Dungeons & Dragons or maybe somebody who's starting up RPGs. This is true. Yeah, you've yeah. got to be beginner-friendly. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you can take hours explaining any setting. So, uh, the other thing, too, is you have to watch out is whenever you're doing something, and, I, uh, and people often do this, uh, they'll, they'll make the mistake of assuming that because you've got, like, a huge setting, you know, everybody else would know this setting very well, and so the moment you do something that, that is not canon... For instance, oh, this, uh, you know, you see the, this guy is wearing this type of, like, tribes. They never wear this, you know. And that's a big, important thing. But it only is big and important if, you know, you actually know the setting very well. Um, if you don't, then you're just like, uh, okay, so that's nice. Yeah, they're green cloaks, big deal. But a good yeah. GM could actually do that in play and just say, see a row of people wearing green cloaks in this city, it's very strange to see people wearing green and everybody's turning their heads. Mm. Yeah, then all of a sudden you've got your backstory in the play. Yeah. Good way to GM. Yeah. Also, the other thing too is you have to watch out with too much exposition. You know, if, if you go to somewhere and they tell you this whole like long story about, you know, the, the king and this and then, you know, the dragon was killed and then after that they lost the sword and then they found the one ring and then they hit it again and, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, the, the players are just going to be like, oh my God, you know, can we just get on with the action, you know? If they feel like they're just going around and their characters know all this stuff because their characters would know, but the players don't, maybe the best way is to actually write it on their character sheet so the players can actually tell what they know to the other players as opposed to being told what they their character knows and then... You know, okay, well, we'll just assume you said that yeah, to the other don't players. Don't write a novel because they're going to be reading this while you're GMing, and that's yeah. just not cool. You don't want to run something that's so long and then have to write something that's so long that people are going to fall asleep. But uh, it's okay to have, like, maybe two or three pages uh, of character background and some important information if, if the game is really centered on knowing that information and to give it an ahead of time to the players so they, they'll read it. Definitely more than five pages is too long. Uh, oh, hell, more than half a page, and you're going to slow down most people who are just there because they either want to play a character or, quite yeah. frankly, depending on the game system, want to kill something or uh, be killed by something if you're yeah. into Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, it really depends on, on what type of game you're running, too. If you're just running it in an arena-style combat, you don't really need a whole lot of background. If you're running something that's a little bit more involved with the uh, the background and and you know the customs of all these 
tribes and so on. I mean, you, you really need to have something that the players will know. Otherwise, you'll just end up telling them no, what y your character would do is, is do it that way because in your tribe you do it that way. And then it's eventually, a horrible way to yeah. GM. <laughs> so it's, it's, you have to watch out for this. Now, um, we did touch on this before by talking about the character sheets and tacking things onto the character sheet before the game begins. This carries with it the a priori assumption that the characters were generated before you even came to the con, right? Well, yeah, that's, that's the number one thing that people should do. If you're running a game at the con, have the characters done ahead of time. Don't just show up and have them expect to make the character sheet in front of them or have them roll their characters, because that takes so long. And, Even uh, if you, you think know. it takes a short time, remember, you are the GM. You know the system like the back of your hand. You can do all this stuff lickety-split. A newbie, and you want to encourage people who are new to different systems to play in your game isn't going to know all this and is not going to generate a character oh so quickly so you need your pre-gens and also a lot of people might just skip your game if they see you hurrying up and making characters at the last minute because they'll just go oh okay he's really well prepared <laughs> it really depends on the type of game you're running i mean if you can get away with just having a character sheet and then you go and do a dungeon crawl that's fine but regardless, you should always have like the characters made ahead of time. And also keep a copy for yourself because you know you don't want to have to keep, oh, well, show me your character sheet again. I can't remember if I gave you a plus two sword. And also that lets you put your own notes about this particular character right in front of you so you can have uh, information that you know that the player doesn't know, which is very important for a GM to have. In terms of handouts or anything like this, I mean, it's always nice to have like some handouts and things like this for your convention. But I would suggest it's probably best to have as little paper as possible around the game table. Because it gets really confusing if you have half a million of photocopies of books, pages uh, of characters, then you have this. And then eventually you just get lost in all the paperwork and you, you're like, oh wow, where you, you have this sense of being lost. And then you're trying to draw maps or anything like this or show them something and it's kind of like, oh well, where is it? Oh, it's underneath this pile of paper there. If your table is organized, then you, your game is going to be running smooth, uh, more smoothly. And don't forget dice. If you're running a game, don't assume people bring their own dice. Just bring as much dice as possible. Bring, you know, your pens. And let the convention know ahead of time if you need special things, like a whiteboard, a, an bigger outlet. A bigger uh, than normal table. Bigger than normal table, an outlet, or anything like this that you need to plug in, like a computer in. Or if you're planning on doing sound effects or having music played during your game, make sure that you've cleared it with a con so that they don't put you next to somebody who's also doing the same thing, so that you're basically... Uh, also that this sort of uh, thing is actually allowed in your venue. Sometimes they'll say no music or no nothing like that, mostly because, you know, the other players around the table the, that played the other games probably don't want to listen to your soundtrack. But if they do allow it, the chesses are they'll put you in a place where you can actually safely do this without annoying anybody else around you. Now let's go like uh, to the adventure itself. We've carried over preparations and skirted over the idea of adventures, systems, and settings. The adventure itself needs to have a very clear, definable goal. No, let's go in and explore. If it is about people exploring the unknown, then they should be trapped there and trying to get home. Or there should be some kind of clear goal of getting to one place from point A to point B 
or obtaining item C or killing person D, whatever. There has to be one thing that, again, you can say in one sentence, this is what you have to do in this adventure. Once you've got that going, you know that you are going to have at least half an hour of getting to know each other, exposition, and so on, and getting to the launch point for the adventure after it's been introduced to everybody. It always takes longer than you think it is, even if you think it can be explained in about 10 minutes or so. And then you have to organize your adventure around forks in the road and decision points. You have to have a finite number of these, not, or at the very least, many different roads that'll lead to the same place, or just a few encounters along the way. Remember the one combat per hour rule. Or if your game is very combat heavy and there's a lot of record keeping to do in, during a single combat round, one big combat total, one big fight at the very, very end, and everything you do is leading up to it. You might have like a little two-minute skirmish here or there with something that's easy to kill, easy to defeat, you know, to whet the player's appetites, and then have your various plot points and revelations at steps along the middle. And you need to divide them into steps. And as you know that you're dealing with a four-hour time slot, try to have no more than one of these things per hour. That way it leaves plenty of time for things to go wrong, for the players to get confused, and who will eventually inevitably pursue red herrings that you haven't thought of, that little thing that you described in detail that has absolutely no significance to the plot whatsoever, that the players are going to halo in on and completely focus on it for up to an hour while you're just waiting to get the damn show on the road. Well, the whole point with a scenario is you want to make it as simple as possible so that if it's a mystery, for instance, the mystery itself, you can piece it together. But once the mystery is found, you know, the, it's, it's very simple. And you don't want to, uh, to make something that is so circumvoluted that it will take like eight hours to actually solve. Puzzles is also something else. You know, we're talking about red herring, but if you're thinking of using puzzles in a game, try to make sure that the puzzle itself is challenging enough to be interesting, but not so challenging that it will take the players, you know, two hours to figure it out. The other thing you could do is if you do want to include like some kind of a puzzle in the game and you're doing this for convention and, and time is something that you're keeping an eye on, make the solving the puzzle not necessary to continue the adventure so you don't get stuck at this one point and you can't progress until you've That's sort of like it, the, yeah. the, cr the core clue mechanic in the uh, gumshoe system though, or you shouldn't where the system is entirely designed around the idea that failure to obtain a vital piece of information shouldn't shore up the entire adventure scenario. In this case, what we're saying is that the puzzle is important enough to be a challenge, right? There should be some kind of reward, obviously, some kind of return on solving it. You can't make it so it's completely possible to do the entire adventure without solving it. 
there could be many, many paths to roam, but there should be cues and clues in the environment that will let the players solve the puzzle, and it shouldn't just all hinge on one character's skill roll. The whole point is, if you do have a puzzle, you can't have... The adventure cannot be completed unless you solve this puzzle. So the best thing is to have a reward for solving the puzzle, something that will make the completion of the adventure easier, but then if you really can't, you can't stop the whole adventure until they actually manage to solve this one puzzle. Same thing, you know, if there's... Well, this is another thing, too, that you can sort of do before you run a convention game, is to playtest the game with some other people first, so that when you do have it to the convention, you have an idea of what people are likely to do, and I've already ironed out some of the stuff that didn't work, because there's always one thing that you didn't think of that people zoom in or focus on. They lose a lot of time going back and forth trying to uh, to to make something out of insignificant detail in your adventure and then the whole thing gets derailed because they're they're off you know searching for the great red herring of Bloomington and really you're, you're trying to get them to uh, explore Arkham Here's a thought here. You don't have to playtest the entire adventure before going to the convention. You might very well not have time for that, especially if a lot of people in your gaming group are going to the convention to begin with. What you could do, though, is playtest that one little thing that you're not sure how well it's going to run, how long it's going to take. Just that alone with the group saying, you're confronted with this, what would you do? What is the first thing you'd look at? What is the first thing that you'd ask? Uh, what is it that you want to find? Then going by how these people react, you could fix and change that particular puzzle so that it's more playable on the convention floor. At least theoretically, because you never know what happens with different groups that you run the same game for. Another thing you can do is you can have your whole scenario written up and everything is ready. And then throughout the game, you can sort of improvise and just say, okay, well, I'm, we're not going to do this encounter. Normally, if they open this door, they get into this room, and this is what the encounter is like, but you're getting short on time, so you figured it's not an, an essential encounter. It's just there to like slow people down. It does have like rewards and stuff like that, but it would be too long to play, so you can just like ignore it, and then they open the door and you come to the next area. So, in other words, you have to have disposable encounters in your adventure, stuff that can be just pulled out of there like a Lego piece just to keep the game going. Or you can add it if you realize the players are going through the adventure too fast. Well, you add an extra scene in there, or you add an extra wrinkle uh, or difficulty in the game. So if they're doing very well at solving the mystery they're investigating, for instance, well, then you can add an extra something in there that changes things slightly and make it a little bit more challenging, and it will slow them down a little. And what you want to do is, is you want to avoid making it too obvious that you're doing this, because you don't want players to, to feel like you're, you're basically... giving them uh, less than you promised. Yeah, well, you're changing things around uh, just uh, you know to, to slow them down or anything like this. So you, you want them to feel like they have, like, they're going for this now. They, they can't know that you're remo adding or removing things. So that when you do finish on time your game, well, it's, it will have run its course within the time frame that you have to run it. And uh, if your game finishes early or risk finishing early, well, if you can add just an extra combat to slow them down, well, then, then uh, you'll, you'll finish within the time. It's just a question of keeping an eye on the watch. So this is like the one place where, you know, your good old standard wandering monster can be helpful in an adventure is just to stretch something out that is going way faster than you thought it would happen. But in general, 
your wandering monster, your random encounter, anything that's tangential to the plot that just happens there is not a good idea for the adventure itself. If it's being played in a four-hour time slot at a convention, what you should do, though, is have something that is plot-relevant that could be added or could be removed, rather than, you know, your generic, ooh, there's a troll in this hallway, kill it. Also, in one-shots, you know, it is possible to kill off characters, because unlike a campaign, if the characters get blown away, well, you're not in a regular campaign, so it's not like it's a big deal. The only problem is, is if you are going to have a reasonable chance to have some of the characters get blown away, have a backup plan to reintroduce the player whose character got blown away, because, you know, if you're going to a convention and you're playing this character and then you die after two hours, of, and you have two hours left in the game session, you can't really start, you know, join another game in between, then, uh, you know, that really sucks for that player. So preferably, if you're going to have a chance that some of the characters are going to die during the scenario, make sure that that is during the final confrontation and not earlier on in the, in the adventure. Or if there's a chance that people are going to die multiple times, have ways for them to come back by playing another character. Paranoia. Or, yeah, like paranoia uh, does. Or if somebody has to leave early, because sometimes people are at conventions, they have to like leave or something, they may have to leave early. Well, you could actually give that character to somebody else or have like a, a method of dealing with this because, you know, that's the other Kill issue. Kill it. Yeah, but that's the other issue you have. Like some people don't actually, they'll join your late, the game late or they'll leave the game early and your game may actually start late. So you want to have ways of being flexible too with the characters and what people can do. The important thing to remember is that the people who come to the uh, convention to play in these games, they're there to participate. They're there to interact. Although you are the game master and it is your plot in your game, you need very much to involve everyone at the table and to make sure that there isn't just, you know, in the sci-fi game, the one guy with the piloting skill who does virtually nothing for the entire adventure. If there has to be a role that is to be played by everybody in the game, and I don't just mean there being in character, there is some vital thing that each character at the table is supposed to do. And whenever you find yourself talking and nobody else is, and they look impatient at you, chances are you're talking too damn much. And that is going to make people feel less involved, even if there is something for them to do, because quite frankly, they're going to zone out. They're not going to be involved. They're not even going to be aware of the entire scenario that you're running. So speak minimally. Let the players do as much of the work as possible in trudging through the scenario and just be their eyes and ears. That's actually a good way of putting it, come to think of it. The players know what their characters are. You don't have to go into too much detail as to what's in their personality, what's in their background, what's in their experience. Part of the fun is in making that stuff up right there at the table when you look at your own character sheet. Okay, I see this character. I know what he or she does. I know where he or she comes from, and I know what this person is like. I can do that. The GM should really be there just to be the eyes, ears, and other sense organs of the players. Tell them what they see. Tell them what they feel. Tell them what they hear. Tell them what they encounter. 
not what they are thinking, not what they are supposedly already know. That makes the GM talk a lot less than you and I are doing now through this entire cast. You don't want to spend too much time, especially at the beginning of the game, before the game actually starts doing lots of exposition. So if the players are to find out something about the plot, it is best for them to actually find out by talking to NPCs and piecing the information together from talking to each other or by what they're doing and seeing. The whole old man in the tavern giving them the whole rundown of the story, telling them what they should be doing. It's really just a one person telling the players what's going on and that's not very interactive. So what you want is you want to actually provide means for players to actually interact with your game. So a lot of things to avoid is just basically telling them the whole story of what happened up to the up to the adventure before the adventure starts and then just assume that either the players know this or it's not important or, or make it not important for your scenario so that you don't actually have a lot of downtime where the GM explains to people facts about the world or what they should be doing and what they're seeing and then provide more ways for the players to actually interact with a scene so that they can get the same information but they can actually do something so in other words uh, you know they'll listen uh, to somebody else's conversation or they'll they'll stare and look at, at somebody's uh, costumes and try to find and find marks on them and things like this rather than just telling them oh, okay well you see this is like the judge of this and he's like that and he does this and he does that and he was born on this and then you spend like too much time mm-hmm. explaining things like that to your players well, you brought up the old man in the tavern that's cliche I mean a lot of people will say we use it because it works it's a very good way to get people involved in an adventure and also to be able to tell the story to the PCs without it being the GM doing it but you got to think for a second how can one person possibly know all these things how can one person in one place know everything making them go from place to place to piece the parts together so that they know where they're going and what they're doing to the inevitable finale of the adventure is actually part of the fun. That's just another way of running a game that could be a lot more interesting at a con. And it also helps because the players very often don't know each other and have never gamed together before, and they're not going to know what to expect from one another. Now, in terms of visual aids, some people want to use visual aids in their game, If you're using a battle mat or anything like this, it's a good idea to actually sit down with your notes and count the number of squares and the dimensions that you have and have a note of that so you don't have to actually sit down and like recalculate it because that will take time. This might seem like a a very obvious thing, but it, it really, really becomes cogent when you're sitting there at the table with an empty mat in front of you and you're not exactly sure how big to make a room. Because then you have to look at it, you have to count this, you know, oh, it's this big, okay, by the time you've done this, your players have already spent, you know, maybe a minute watching you trying to figure out how big the room is. So uh, doing it ahead of time and seeing where to put stuff down allows you to actually better manage it and then not actually have to erase a lot of things halfway through because you made a mistake or because you're running out of room and so on. So that might help. The other thing too is if you do have like handouts or anything like this that are prepared so you can just give it to the players so they can take a look at it. 
all these things can help speed up the game if you don't have to say redraw something if you know it's going to take you a while to draw have it ready before and then just give that to the players so again like try to minimize the time you're spending but that's more like on the visual front other than just the background and telling people what uh, what's happening as far as like using miniatures is concerned sure that the miniatures you use, I mean, they don't really have to be super appropriate for the game. I mean, if you have like a big elephant in the middle of your battle mat and you say, this is a dragon, that's fine because it's just a marker, quite frankly. Though people will appreciate when you go that extra mile to paint real figures and real models. Uh, that having been said, you at the very least need to have one unique figure for each and every PC in the party, that they can easily tell each other apart, rather than saying, oh, this is penny number one is you, penny number two is me, and the wizard is a dime. You want to have at least that much differentiation, otherwise it will bog down and it will become very confused when you do run combats. That is assuming that the combat system for your role-playing game system of choice requires that spatial dimension. I mean, if you don't really need minis in your game, you don't really need to use them. If you do need them, because the combats require people moving in specific way on the grid and so on, then yeah, okay, well, making sure you have enough figures, and like they don't have to be all appropriate, just as long as you can tell you know, very quickly who's who, and what's going on. You know, it could be all figures of the same color. It says all the guys in white, so skeleton. Some of them are not skeletons, but it doesn't matter. At least you know that these white well, no, guys are the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. No, the monsters the, the monsters can all look the same. That's fine. You know, all skeletons look alike. Ha ha. But it's the player characters that need to be easily differentiated from one another if you're using a system like that. I mean, there are some game systems that absolutely require it. It is now impossible to play D&D 4th Ed without miniatures or cut-out counters that they're making for it. That's fine. You just got to make sure that you actually have them before you go in there. As far as the monsters are concerned, yeah, you're facing a dozen and a half goblins that all have exactly the same stats, then you can use dozen and a half cannon fodder figures that all look the same. So that's... Pretty much, I think, the whole rundown on preparing your game for the con, I guess the whole point is prepare your stuff in advance and make sure that when you do run it, everything runs smoothly, and if there's anything that doesn't run well, make a note of that, and the next time you run this game at a convention, just fix the problems that didn't really work well, that bogged down play. So on a completely different note, we uh, had a chance to speak with somebody at a local convention very recently. Why don't you tell us about him? Well, his name is Luke. He's part of the 501st Legion. So if people have gone to conventions, they would have undoubtedly seen all the stormtroopers and Darth Vader's and all these people in costume. Well, these are generally the people who are in costume doing this at conventions. The 501st Legion is is basically a a fan club where people make their own costume or sometimes buy them. And they uh, dress up as the Star Wars character. And uh, usually the costumes are very good. And uh, so we had the chance to talk to one of them in a short little interview telling us, you know, how to get involved in the 501st or the Rebel Alliance, which is the uh, other uh, fan organization. It's called the Rebel Legion. Rebel Legion, yeah. Well, they they, they told me not to actually join the Rebel Legion. They said they'd have to shoot me because they're the 501st. 
I think they didn't even want us to put that on the air, but you know, the, I, I got some bad vibes about this Emperor Palpatine. I really think that, you know, this whole thing about dissolving the Senate, I mean, it was just, it was, but the guy, the guy's a d okay, dissolve the Senate. I mean, you dissolve the Senate, and, and, and you know, you blow up the, the planet. I think just I'm about to lose my will to live here. Let's just roll it. Yeah. Here we are at Dicecast. Uh, I'm with Luc at Geekfest. Luc is a member of the 501st Legion, Forteresse Imperiale of Quebec. So I'm sure some people know what 501st Legion is, and I'm sure some other people don't. So why don't you just tell us who you are? Uh, yes, it's an international costuming organization. Uh, the 501st is the bad guy's costume, and you have the Rebel Legion, which is the good guy's costume. And both of those groups are... Uh, around the world, in the costume as a character from the movies, the Expanded Universe, which is the comic books and uh, video games. So like the Star Wars movies, the uh, prequels and the uh, original, the comic books, uh, uh, the novels too? Yeah, everything. Now, about 501st, is there like a, a preference? Do some people like consider that, you know, if it's from the movie, it's, it's more genuine than, you know, if it's come from one of the comic books or video games? Or is there like a certain rivalry or a certain like arguments in between, you know, consumers as to what is more genuine than the other? No, the controversy is more uh, about the quality of the costumes. If you have good reference, be it movies or a comic book, if you have good reference for the costume and you, your costume looks like the comic book or the movie, it's an uh, excellent experience. Now, you're all about costuming and getting up in costume and so on. Uh, obviously, people have seen uh, members of the 501st and Rebel at uh, you know, conventions or you're a, you know, a staple of conventions everywhere. Um, in terms of you know all the costumes and props and so on, I mean, I mean, do some people think you know, or are some people LARPers? Do you, do you confuse with LARPers? Do you do live action role playing, or is that one of the things that you don't do? It says no, we're costumers. You know, sort of like a you know SCA versus LARPer type of thing going on. Yeah, some people think we do LARPs and those stuff, but uh, no, we just uh, costume for convention. We do parades. We uh, visit uh, children in hospitals and do uh, charity works. So, uh, so you, you, you help like uh, old ladies cross the the road in full Imperial Guard costume. Yeah. That, that's one lady that won't probably get uh, bothered by anybody. <laughs> in terms of, of joining for 501st Legion, how, if somebody was interested, and somebody's listening to the show and they would like to join, like, how can you do this? Like, you know, what would be the, the steps? Uh, for the Imperial costume, you go to uh, 501st.com and then you uh, check there's a detachment forum where you can uh, get information on how to make or how to get certain parts for certain costume because Stormtrooper is different than a Sand Trooper so you have different uh... so you have, you have like a, a guide for you know making sure the costume is authentic um, do you have people who buy just their costume and is that fine or some more people like go all the way out and make their costume is is there like a you know a difference between the two well some people can buy the costume but 
there's always some work to do because like the Stormtrooper armor, it's a one size armor so you have to adjust it for larger or smaller people. So uh, it always involves a little work. This is one question that comes times and times again. 501st Legion, basically Imperial, the Sith, you know, all the bad guys. And there's a rumor going around on the internet, in order to join, you have to go out there and shoot a couple of Jawas. Is that true? <laughs> no. You, you're sure? Because that's not what the Jawas are saying. They're, they're saying you guys, like, keep, you know, it's, it's not saying crawlers. It's too precise. Don't listen to the Jawa. They're saying... Okay, they're, they're making it up. All right. So thank you very much, Luke, uh, for uh, Luke from the 501st Legion. What is your website? It's uh, 501st.com for the bad guys and uh, rebellegion.com for the good guys. All right, so uh, choose your side, get your costume, and see you at the next convention. Thank you. See you. Now, one question you didn't ask him, which was a little bit surprised, is the guy was there in full stormtrooper regalia, right? Actually, he was dressed as an uh, uh, imperial officer. Okay, he was dressed as an imperial officer, and his name was Luke. Yeah. Thought that was a little weird. It could be a trap. Oh, okay. All right. So, thank you for listening to DiceCast. This was episode number 15. Tune in for our next episode, episode 16. That's all the time we have for this episode. You can find out more about who we are and what we do at our website, www.polymancer.com, or our main corporate website, www.polymancerstudios.com. You can email us at dicecast at polymancer.com, follow us on Twitter at polymancer, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash polymancer, or myspace.com slash polymancer. The music for this segment, Fort Minor, remember the name BYFH Remix by Chojin, Violated Instrumental by Technetium, Industrial March Beat and Triple Layer Guitar in E by Neurowax are all released under a Creative Commons license. This episode is copyright 2011 Polymancer Studios Incorporated, released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivative works license. This episode may be freely redistributed as long as it is done for no charge and as long as due credit is given to the copyright owners. Full text of the Creative Commons license is available at creativecommons.org. Dicecast is a trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Polymancer is a registered trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Thank you for listening to the Dicecast.